I was thinking I've just about known Sam Webb as long as he's known Ronan Point, I suppose, uh, which is quite a long time. And over the years, I've been absolutely fascinated by the story of Sam's life, really. I mean, a few innocent remarks to that incredible guy, George Fairweather, and, and suddenly a whole life's career takes shape, and you haven't really, no, I, I'm not going to say you haven't done anything else, but it has really been a life's work, and I'm absolutely looking forward to the uh, saga. One feels one's probably read most of it before, but having said that, I'll be very surprised if that proves to be the, the case, Sam. So without any further ado whatsoever, and I take it, Leslie, that people know there is a wine bar at 8 o'clock until 9 o'clock or something. Um, good. So without any further ado, Sam, the part is yours. Just now. The talk is called People in High Places. That's a deliberate title. It's quite difficult for anyone here who hasn't experienced it to actually understand what it is like to live in a high-rise, multi-story tower block. And this lecture is in honor of two people. One little boy, aged four, who died in 1983, falling from the balcony of Abraham's Point in Canning Town, which was the first block that was built in the Roman Point series in Freemasons Road. He fell from the balcony because there wasn't anywhere else for him to play. In 1981, April Merrin died on March the 7th. She was 21. She left two small children, and she lived in Denison Point, which you may have seen mentioned in the Daily Telegraph colour supplement a couple of weeks ago. It's a 22-storey tower block squashed between the main road from London to Essex and the main railway line outside, out of Liverpool Street, and the northern outfall sewer. There are two other blocks in the series, James Riley Point and Lund Point, which was named after the then deputy borough architect, who is now the borough architect of Newham. And April Merrin lived on the 21st floor. As a result of that, the Newham Tower Blocks Tenants Campaign was formed. And a program was made, a You and Yours program was made in 1983 and we had a conference in Newham, and some of you may have come to it. Before that, in 1981, a man who was living in Denison Point, who worked for Roger Cook on the Roger Cook program, made a program about April Merrin. I thought very hard about whether I should play this here. I've never played it before in public. Um, but I'm going to go through the two tapes and then a series of slides, um, and uh, then speak. I think what happened to April Merrin and the description of what happened from her friend needs no further elaboration. Could we have the first slide, please? Just shut my eyes and it's back. Clear as anything. Well, I heard a bang, but I didn't take no notice. It was obviously a window slamming shut after she'd gone. And the next thing I know, there's my next-door neighbour knocking at the door. 
well, banging at the door to come running in and started yelling, April's gone out the window, have a look, you know. And I couldn't take it in. And I said, no, can't be. And um, so I said, well, about the children? I said, where's the children? They said, downstairs with their father. And the police knocked at the door. And uh, he said, we want a statement of you. So I said, why? I said, because it's not her down there. It's not. I said, she's gone shopping. So they turned around and said, if you're so sure it's not her, could you look out the window? And uh, we, we opened the window. And the top part of her body was just being put, put onto the trolley. It was her, and it was like looking at a broken doll, or an old jigsaw puzzle. And no matter how hard you try, you couldn't put the pieces back together again. Her face, she just looked like she was asleep. were meant to solve a number of pressing problems in the 50s, lack of building land, a paucity of public funds, and shortage of housing. Now they're seen to have created as many problems as they solved. It took a disaster to highlight those problems. It occurred 15 years ago in the East London borough of Newham at Roman Point. Well, about six o'clock this morning, I came to uh, get up to better work, and then all of a sudden, there was such a terrific crash. Of course, all you know, all the knot came down. When he comes to look out the window, the whole knot from the top had come falling down and we could see the other parts of the uh, flats. Five people died, many others were injured when, as that woman described, the corner of the block collapsed. Ronan Point was patched up and still exists, as do the problems of high-rise flats. A national conference is being held, perhaps appropriately, at Roman Point this weekend to discuss what can be done about the sort of conditions that Cheryl Armitage found when she visited that notorious tower block. The first thing I noticed when I arrived at Roman Point were piles of rubbish, dog dirt, and signs saying keep off the grass and no ball games. Through the front door, with its holes where the entry phone and lock used to be, and your senses are assaulted by a stink of urine. Through the door and onto the staircase, and the smell is even worse which isn't surprising, according to Diana James, who I met there. She moved into her flat on the 22nd floor eight years ago, and she's been trying to get out ever since. There's everything on there. The only thing that I've not seen on the stairs is a bed. I've seen cookers, fridges, chest of drawers. God. Dirty nappies, you know. Bad. So it's all left there, till it mounts up when it gets so much, and the caretaker decides to come and take it away. There's a lift. Let's get in there. Just have to step in it to smell it. The caretaker comes, he does it in the mornings about nine o'clock, but as soon as he's gone, I mean, you know, people urinate in it, they even put rubbish in it and leave it there, not bothering to take it down and bring it outside. Maria and the 
Nathaniel lives on the 17th floor. She's got two young children and a third on the way. Cockroaches, especially now the heating's on, they're coming out in their hundreds. The whole block's got them. What's it like for the kids? The kids are a lot more different because once they've been like her, she was born here, sort of thing, you know, so she don't know. No different, they're used to the lifts there. No, there's nothing for them to do because there was a community room that's been burnt out. Because you're seven months pregnant now, what's it like living so far up, 17th floor? I'm a bit worried. And when my time comes, if the lift's out of order, then I have a long walk down, and I... <laughs> now that gives you some idea, if you could, of what it is like to live in Roman Point or any of those other tower blocks in Liverpool or Glasgow or wherever. Those buildings came out of the post-war housing reconstruction in this country. The first bombs that fell in London fell on the docks on the 7th of September 1940, five o'clock in the afternoon. Anyone that was in London on that day would have remembered it. That night, the sky of London was red. When the sun went down in the west, the sky was even brighter red in the east, and there was a column of smoke that rose, took up half the sky. And in the morning, my aunt, who was about 19 years old, arrived at our house. And she'd come from Stepney, where my grandparents lived. And she'd cycled through London. And she talked about writhing snakes of fire hoses and rubble and burned out buildings. On the left, on the right, you see what happened in West Ham. That is Cresset Road, West Ham. And on the left is Franz Lindman. Franz Lindman, or Lord Cherwell as he later became, was a bombing advisor to Hitler, uh, to Churchill. He was a German. And during the winter of 1941 and 1942, Lindman went with others, other experts, and they measured and surveyed what happened in Hull what happened in Liverpool and other towns, and they calculated a quite cold-blooded equation that a tonne of bombs would destroy between 20 and 40 buildings and make between 100 and 200 people homeless, that one bomber would last 14 missions, although the air crew had a tour of operations of 20, and you got a medal if you actually survived. One bomber could carry three tonnes of bombs, on 14 missions, they could drop 42 tons, which would make 4,000 and 8,000, between 4,000 and 8,000 people homeless. It led inevitably to Hamburg, to Dresden, and Hiroshima. And 50 million people died in that war, 20 million Russians and 10 million Germans. Bomber Harris led Bomber Command. His... Um, the, 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 uh, I've forgotten the, the, the word, the, 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 the padre for Bomber Command was a man called Collins, Canon Collins, as he later became. He became very concerned about what was happening, and he, he organised a lecture at uh, High Wycombe called God, Is God My Co-Pilot? And for this, he wasn't actually very popular within Bomber Command. 
Now childhood, and the childhood of the children that live in these tower blocks, the childhood of children who lived in London during the war, or Liverpool, or Glasgow, or Hamburg, should have been an age of innocence. London 1940 was my age of innocence, and this is the Bishop of Stepney and London 1940. Next tape, please. London, 1940. September and the subsequent bombing of London, Silvertown, Canning Town, West Ham had 27% of their housing destroyed. Pro parts of that area, which is now the Royal Docks, were handed over to, they were so badly damaged, they were handed over to the army for exercises and people were moved out. And during that period, the welfare state was launched. It was launched to replace these buildings here that were in Canning Town. That was the photographs taken by Wall Hannington in 1933. And the photograph on the left, on your right, is the Albert Hall in 1943, after the Battle of Stalingrad, when it was inevitable that the war would be won and a sword was presented that was to the people of Stalingrad made in Sheffield. And the welfare state was announced by Beveridge. And it had five-pronged attack 
on the condition, on the social conditions that people lived in. Health, education, housing, social security, and employment. And people talked. The, the uh, politicians, the days of two and three million unemployed are a thing of the past. And the Picture Post magazine described the welfare state as a mighty weapon of war. And beverage broadcast to occupied Europe. And Hitler ordered Ribbentrop to get together a German welfare state plan that could be broadcast back. And Churchill received a letter from a young member of parliament, a conservative, called Quintin Hogg, now Lord Hailsham, who said, if we do not adopt this welfare state, we will never deserve to be elected again. And Churchill feared a revolution. That's why it was announced. Because in 1919, when he'd been in the government, people in Glasgow went on strike for a 40-hour week. The Secretary of State for Scotland was persuaded it was a Bolshevik plot. Next day, people woke up to find tanks in the streets, machine guns in hotels, and post offices in the howitzer. In the 1940s, people had memories. They knew what had happened before. They could remember the 30s, unlike today. When the emergency factory-made housing plan was announced in 1944, Churchill said, we will put as much effort into this as we are into the North Africa campaign. Today, the government announces lotteries for the National Health Service, and Margaret Thatcher is presently rewriting the Bible. Could we have tape four, please? To understand why there's now such a glut of housing defects, it's worth going back to the 1960s when the post-war housing boom reached its peak. In 1963, Sir Keith Joseph was the housing minister for the Conservative government. The only answer is more housing. The government are looking to increasing the productivity in the building industry and are basing all their plans during the following five years on reaching and maintaining a level of 400,000 houses a year. And so the numbers game began. Successive governments set increasingly ambitious targets for house building. By the mid-60s, the Labour government was leading the field, realising, along with everyone else, that to cope with such a demand for housing, new building techniques should be tried. The systems-built house, made in a factory and assembled in sections on the site, was coming of age. Although it was untested, the then Labour housing minister, Richard Crossman, could be heard making rash claims for it. It does, of course, mean factory-built houses, but factory-built houses can be just as good as production-line cars. And I think we're going to move to this. The only thing is to make sure that they're done by good architects and well landscaped, and that will get over any danger of monotony. That will get over any danger of monotony. You would also have seen that photograph, that building on the front cover of the Daily Telegraph colour supplement uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's at Royston Hill in Glasgow. Now, how did this all come about? In the 1920s and the 1930s, the architect, Le Corbusier, set up 
his sales pitch. He had to convince politicians. Politicians don't really like architects and artists. So he came up with some very hard and, and, and factual comments on what the buildings were to be like. Here's a bomb falling on an armoured building. There is gas. And if you stood the building up on Pilates, and if you also had an air pipe, you could get fresh air into the building, and people could survive. What was believed was about to come. If you read any books of that period, George Orwell's coming up for air, there is a man, the hero of the book, going on a train into London, into the town, and there's a bomber following the train. Now, to bring it up to the 1960s, the 1950s, when I was a student, and some of you were students, we have conferences at the RIBA and other places. Could this one be focused? And Dame Evelyn Sharp, who was the secretary to the Ministry of Housing, read a poem about towers and how beautiful they were. Probably she was thinking of this one at Sissinghurst. She certainly wasn't thinking of these ones in Kentish Town, Leeds, Glasgow, and so on, with the actual quote that the tenants dug up of tall stories that you can believe. That actually was meant as a sales pitch. But of course there was another edge to all of this. There still is today. There's Royston Hill in Glasgow. This is Glasgow. It says up there, this slum could be your gold mine. And this morning on the radio, there was somebody from the RICS talking about houses as gold mines. And people are looking to houses in the East Anglia going up by 40% a year. And there is the Barbican with a flat of a million pounds a year. And this one is, I can't read it, uh, so it's about 25, 26 pounds a month, if you can actually afford 25 or 26 pounds a month. We'll see the inside of that one a bit later. Now, by the early 1960s, when the first tower blocks had been built and high-rise slab blocks had been built, people didn't like them. They came in under the 1956 Housing Act, passed under the Conservative administration when Macmillan was uh, um, the Minister of Housing. That Act of Parliament gave local authorities money for building high. You couldn't build houses. The higher you went, the more money that you got. The government set up a committee the early 1960s, 1961. One member of that committee, a young woman member of parliament elected in 1959, wrote an anonymous article in the Times. She didn't take the fact that people didn't like these buildings very seriously. And she wrote, if more British mothers showed more initiative and more fibre and took their children out more, the problem would disappear. She was married to the multi-millionaire owner of Burma Oil. Her son got lost in the desert a couple of years ago. You know her better as Margaret Thatcher. Now, the government 
present government are going to sell housing. They've sold off gas, they got five and a half billion pounds. They've sold off British Telecom, they got two point six billion pounds. A million council houses have been sold off. If you reckon them at an average value of ten thousand pounds each, that's a lot of money. The actual value of the housing stock last year is a hundred and fifty billion pounds. Now architects in this game almost that it was became the soft policemen but they were governed by iron laws. Perhaps we didn't realise they were there. This is the first one. There's a pound sign, there's the area of the building. If that's the cost of the building and that is the area and those two are fixed and you have inflation, the only thing that can alter is the quality and it won't go up. And then there was the hierarchy. You probably can't read that. That says emperor, empress, three client ladies, nine consorts, 27 beauties, and the 81 attendant nymphs and assistant concubines who were ably assisted by 3,000 palace maidens. That was the hierarchy, 1500 BC in China. It was the breeding cycle of the emperor. It worked on a 15-day cycle, when, and when the empress was at her most fertile, she got two knights all on her own with the emperor. When the British went to China in the late 18th century, the early 19th century, they brought this back, lock, stock and barrel. It became the English civil service. It's why you have mandarins and eunuchs in Whitehall. Think about it. I did some research to try and find out the oldest piece of pre-casting I could find in this country. The first piece of large panel construction in cast iron. It's in a church in Burwash, 14th century AD. It says on it, and I can assure you it's right, because it's in a book by John Gloeg, and you can look it up in the library. It says, pray for the soul of Joan Collins. <laughs> I also I found a piece of Chinese precasting 300 years earlier, 11th century pagoda about 100 feet high it survived God knows how many earthquakes cast in sections it's about 100 feet high, sorry cast in sections a story at a time of course it didn't fall down they bolted it all together, quite unlike many of our system buildings. Now, system builders and people who run hierarchies like this don't like architects and, most, and don't like artists, and most art architects consider their artists. And those system buildings had views much like Stalin had of artists and Queen Victoria. Stalin said we couldn't trust them to do as they're told, and Queen Victoria said you never know where they've been. Yes? Now, the RIBA held a series of conferences. There was one at Church House, Westminster. There was one here. I'll read you two quotes. They, I won't say who said them, but if anybody asks me afterwards, I'll tell you. Maybe if you're in the audience. 
One eminent engineer said, think not what prefabrication will do for you, think what you will do for prefabrication. Sometime afterwards he got CBE. Another man, member of council of the RIBA, stood up in here, it's in the journal, up in the library, and said I was a bitter opponent of system building until they made me the design consultant architect for the bison wall frame system. <laughs> yes? Now, that's true. It's in the RIBA journal. Last month, I appeared on television live in Birmingham with a whole lot of people, including um, Charlie Cray and Barbara Windsor, and, uh, who were pleading for Ronnie and Reggie to be let out of uh, prison because they, they didn't kill proper people, they said, only killed villains. And um, I was going up there to speak on behalf of a number of people who bought system-built houses. One of them was a man called John Neville. He'd had his house surveyed by the Woolwich Building Society. And the Woolwich Building Society gave him a report which said, your house is built of brick with cement render. We got a bit concerned, and he phoned up the council, and they said, no, it's perfectly all right, it's okay. It's as they say. So he took out a mortgage. Shortly afterwards, he got a letter from the council to say, your, your house has been included in the housing defects bill and now we can't sell it. So perhaps these buildings ought to carry a uh, government wealth warning <coughs> and maybe it's not okay to be with the Woolwich. Now this is Ronan Point. As it was at half past five in the morning, on the morning of Thursday, uh, the 16th of May, 1968. And in there was Miss Hodge, Ivy Hodge. And she got up. In fact, she got up in the night because she heard funny noise and she'd come through here and she'd gone into her bathroom and she'd stood on the toilet seat and she'd listened at the ventilator because she could hear a funny noise and she didn't know where it was coming from. She went back in, she went back to bed, then she got up, came in, went in the bathroom, did the normal things we do, came into the kitchen, filled up her kettle, and then she... <laughs> Jake, sit down. And then the next thing she remembered was lying on the floor looking at flames on the ceiling. And she got out of her flat and she was <coughs> remembers being in the street and she was taken to hospital. She lived in this flat here on the southeast corner of Ronan Point. The walls were held up this is a wall, this is a floor pad. And I sat on these bolts, and the floor pad sat <coughs> here, as you can see, on a piece of hardboard. And we have a piece down there somewhere. And there are two one-inch square bolts, which weren't like that. They'd fallen down the bottom, and most of that was empty. And then this 
was dry packing, which of course, as the men pushed it, all fell down the outside of the building. And um, that was what was holding up Ivy Hodge's flat. So, of course, when the explosion or explosions occurred, there wasn't much to hold it together. There were some metal straps there. You can see some down there, three or four of them, um, that weren't actually built in the building that we found underneath the screed. Now, standing on the floor above Ivy Hodge, flat 91, almost immediately above her flat, was a man called Harry Pumphrey. He'd been woken up early in the morning by a noise like a drill, and it got louder and louder, and he stood with his hand on the doorpost of the building, and he couldn't understand what this noise was. And then there was a tremendous explosion, and the building swayed from side to side, and he rushed back in, rescued his wife, and uh, got down the staircase. In the street outside, two men were going to work, Mr. Latchford and Mr. Robinson. Both of them heard an enormous explosion. Latchford said it was so loud, he was right underneath the building, he put his hands over his ears, didn't know where it came from, turned round and saw the top of the building had gone. And, and then he heard another explosion, and then he saw the top of the building go. And at the public inquiry, the QC for the contractor said, what did you do then? And Latchford said, I thought, oh my God, there are people living in there, and I ran down the road towards Ronan Point. Both those men heard two explosions. There was a shopkeeper called Mr Thomas. He heard two explosions. There was a policeman in the Port of London Authority. He heard two explosions. In the public inquiry report, it says that 58 people heard, uh, were witnesses to it, heard one or two explosions. It says a minority heard two explosions. That minority was 24 people. All of them were awake. 34 people heard one explosion or didn't hear an explosion but were counted as one, including someone who was deaf. Most of those people were woken up by something including Fred Jones, the leader of Newham Council, who didn't give evidence but lived somewhere away from the building. His dog woke him up and then he heard the explosion. There was a woman in the building whose baby woke her up and she said in the evidence, something must have frightened the baby. It was actually impossible to make this building as the specifications said. Each one of those bolts held that up temporarily. That is repeated on through the building until you come to the reverse of that on the other side. It required each wall panel to be lowered onto that piece of mortar. It required one man standing by every bolt with a spanner and each man winding it down simultaneously and there weren't enough workmen on the site to do it. And if they had done it, it would in fact have opened up all of those joints and made the building totally discontinuous. The men on site knew this. 
Not one single one of those bolts was wound down. What really concerned George Fairweather and I in 1968 in buildings like this, because we knew about Morris Walk and that former construction, and he was the chairman of the fire codes on High Flats and Ronan Point, didn't comply with it, was what would happen over a period of time as the building settled and all the load was concentrated on that bolt. We'll see that later. That day, the newspapers all over London, in fact, all over the world, carried this picture. Firemen climbed out to try and see what had happened. Miss Hodge's flat here, flat 90, disappeared, as did most of the other flats all the way down. There was a woman called Brenda Morn who was asleep in her lounge. She was on the couch. She had a small baby. She was about there on the building. The flat collapsed. Somehow, she got to the door. At the public inquiry, the QC said, for the contractors said, what was the condition of the load-bearing wall? Did it come in or out of the building? This woman had a broken leg, three teeth knocked out, cracked ribs, had suffered very badly in this, in this collapse. There wasn't a diagram, there wasn't a model where she could point this out, and she was questioned relentlessly about what was the condition of the load-bearing wall, were you facing the load-bearing or the non-load-bearing wall? And she said, I don't know. My husband was on the other side of the door and it opened towards me and I was hanging on a piece of reinforcing rod which came down from the roof. And she was standing on a piece of concrete that was about half the size of your seat, right up there on the building. And he had to open the door towards her to rescue her. And he said to her, don't look down, and she said, but I did, and it had all gone. And there were people like Sheridan Hitchcock of the Newham Tablots Tenants Campaign, who was about at school, came home on the bus, walked down the road, saw all these fire engines, and suddenly saw all of this. She later ended up living in a building looking at that with her children. And people talked about running along this corridor and banging on people's front doors and not getting an answer and out looking through the letterbox and seeing the sky. And five people died, four in the collapse and an old lady later. As those photographs were being taken, there was a meeting at 10 Downing Street between Harold Wilson and Crossman, who wrote the diaries. And if you look up 16th of May in Crossman's diary, Crossland comes in. And Crossland comes in and says, a block of flats has fallen down in East London. And when I actually read it, it's almost like somebody saying, well, it was somewhere like Czechoslovakia, because nobody then realised the full importance of it. And, and, and Crossman made a comment 
Well, Greenwood was in Poland. When I was Minister of Housing, I never got to go anywhere except um, Peter, uh, Peter Lee or somewhere like that. And people were taken away. And Thomas North, the borough architect of Newham, came to the site. It was the biggest scheme in his office. It was the first time he'd ever visited it. And a reporter from the Daily Express questioned him and he said, these flats are perfectly safe, people could go back into them. And he proposed moving people into the building and its headlines on the front page of the Daily Express. And a director of Taylor Woodrow Anglia and the contractors said to a young reporter from the Times newspaper, I can see no sign of structural damage. <laughs> now, Miss Hodge was here. In That's her kitchen. That's her flat. She had in there, there was an electricity meter there, the remains of her bathroom, her kitchen. There's the cooker here. If you look at it carefully, there's rubble underneath the cooker and there was also rubble on top of the cooker. There was a nut, a famous nut, that connected the cooker to the standpipe. And there was a fire there, and Miss Hodge saw flames on the ceiling. But there was also a very fierce fire in that cupboard. And there were no scorch marks connecting this room with that room there. And there were two fires in the building. Miss Hodge was tested for smell. See if she had a normal sense of smell in Harley Street and in the hospital. And she, it was found that actually she had a better sense of smell than most of the doctors that were testing her. Um, there were two doors. One there and one here to her living room. This door to her living room was blown 300 feet out of the building. This door here doesn't really get a mention in the report, but if you dig through and sift through all the reports in the ministry, you can find out what happened to it. In June, on the 26th of June, 1968, for the public inquiry, an advice note was prepared by the Treasury solicitor for the chairman, and it said, they, the North Thames Gas Board and the Gas Council, cannot explain the drilling noise which reached such a crescendo just before the explosion. That, of course, was the drilling noise that Harry Pumphrey had heard. They, that's the gas, board, the gas council and the North Thames Gas Board, think there were two explosions. They think that the bathroom or the store cupboard was the source of the explosion. The latter, that's the store cupboard, particularly because the cupboard door would appear to have been blown to smithereens. Now, in the production of a public inquiry report, lots of drafts are made, amendments are made, but people initial those drafts. And there is a draft on the cause of the explosion, which is initialed by the engineer of the public, at the public inquiry, Sir Alfred Pugsley, dated the 19th of September, 1968. And it says that the door between the cupboard and the hall was blown completely out of the building. 
but pieces of it were eventually recovered. It doesn't get mentioned in the public inquiry report because if it had have been, the simple explanation that it was a gas explosion would not have stood very close examination. On that wall there is an electricity meter. There. And here is the nut, not the actual nut, but one that was specially machined to fail. Miss Hodge had a shilling in the slot meter. She put five pence in. She'd lived in the flat since the 15th of April, 1968. The explosion uh, occurred on the 16th of May, and there were seven shillings in the slot meter. She hadn't put any money in since the previous Thursday. There couldn't have been very much gas, actually, in the gas meter. Somebody was called in to make a check on the electrical installation. A man called J. McKechnie Jarvis. He checked all the floor mats, the underfloor heating, and said that he, if he had been asked to pass them, wouldn't have been able to pass the electrical installation as safe. Mr. Pike, who fitted the gas cooker for Miss Hodge, had read her electricity meter on the evening of the 14th of May. That was 36 hours before the building fell down. It was a brand new meter. McKechnie Jarvis had this to say in their report about that meter. Another thing occurs, and that is the meter in the key flat, which records thousands of units of electricity as against hundreds elsewhere. Now, it's stretching the bounds of possibility a great deal for there to have been not only a dodgy nut in that flat, but a dodgy meter as well. What Miss Hodge also had in that flat were piles of old 78 gramophone records buried away in the report, in the drafts of, of, of the uh, reports that were going to make up the final public inquiry report, is a mention of those gramophone records and the fact that they could cause quite a violent explosion if stood on a heated floor. Now, a number of people became concerned about what had happened at Roman Point. Joan Littlewood was one. She wrote two plays. This one on the left was produced in 1970 at the Theatre Royal Stratford called The Projector. She had plans for another one, which was to have been performed in St Paul's Cathedral under the dome with a stage the shape of a nut. And she wrote a letter to Canon Collins who had been Bomber Harris's padre and had organised that lecture, was God my co-pilot. And Joan received ominous noises from the Lord Chamberlain, who then reviewed all, all uh, plays and was actually threatened with jail if she went ahead with her play. So it was withdrawn and it was rewritten. I and mean, you should remember that as today the government are going to appoint Rhys Mogg 
to censor and look at television <laughs> programs. And this was performed, and it was written by William Rufus Chetwood. It was set in Restoration England. And uh, it was about the building of some jerry-built houses in London, which fell down. The critics loved it. The music was by Carl Davis. It was probably one of the best things that Joan did in the last years at Theatre Workshop. Of course, William Rufus Chatwood didn't write it at all. When asked uh, where the manuscripts were for this, it was announced that they'd been sold to an American millionaire and they were going away to be put into university archives. And at present, they were halfway across the Atlantic. But John Wells spilled the beans that he'd written it to Alan Corran. And the critics, instead of being en enraptured by this, got very annoyed because the last thing critics like are being made fools of. And in 1968, public inquiry, just like the King's Cross inquiry or the Zeebrugge inquiry, gathered shape. And in August 1968, a test was done at the building research station by a full-scale uh, part of Ronan Point. And it was found to fail at 1.8 pounds a square inch. That's the H2 joint. But of course the government knew that. Two days after the collapse, on the Saturday the 18th of May 1968, Cleve Barr, the architect, and Dr. Chan, the engineer from the National Building Agency, went to Ronan Point and on a single sheet of paper calculated that the walls would fail with a pressure of between one and two pounds a square inch. The government knew it and they were scared. The report had been weighted, uh, was weighted for by uh, local authorities with considerable trepidation. What were they to do with all of these buildings? It was published on the 14th of October, 1968, and the government chose quite deliberately to issue it on the day the Tricky Dicky was elected. On the day Ronan Point collapsed, that building was 19 floors high. This building was one floor high. By the time the public inquiry had finished and the report was issued in November 1968, that was completed and so was that. Now, unknown to anyone at this time, apparently disconnected with system building, a series of investigations were going on in London, other parts of the country. People were being appointed to jobs. People were picking up public relations consultancies. And a man called Barry Payton was made appointed town clerk of Wandsworth. And the police were called in within days of his appointment. He called them in. And Sergeant Monk and Sergeant Mee set up an office in a ladies' restroom in Wandsworth Town Hall. And they started to unravel 
what later became the Paulson Affair. And on the 1st of May, 1968, the contractors got the best man that they could to represent their interest for their firm. And they hired his public relations consultancy and his name was T. Dan Smith. And T. Dan Smith had been running the public relations consultancy for the Labour Party in the 1964 election. And investigations continued. And in 1964, Cleve Barr travelled to Pontefract to interview this man on the left, John Paulson, to get him to go to Sweden to look at a system called SCARN, of which Dan Smith was the agent. And Dan Smith wrote letters to a member of parliament in which he described his role in SCARN and also system building as the V-bomb of peacetime. And these two, between them, effectively stitched up local government throughout this country. Not only that, they were involved too with many other people. And eventually, at the height of the RIBA conference in 1972, this sort of bombshell dropped that the deputy leader of the Conservative Party, the deputy prime minister, the home secretary, was involved with Paulson and Dan Smith in a company called Open System Building. He had no other option but to resign, and he did resign. Perhaps if Maudling had not resigned at that time, he would have succeeded Heath as leader of the Conservative Party and might well have become Prime Minister. And here is Dan Smith with Harold Wilson at 10 Downing Street. Now, that rather murky undercurrent was going on at the time of Ronan Point, at the time of the local authorities looking into system buildings at the time of local authorities, wondering where the money was going to come from. Taylor Woodrow thought they were getting a good deal in appointing Dan Smith as their PR, in hiring Dan Smith as their PR consultant. He knew everybody. They didn't know what he was up to, though. And so Ronan Point was left in 1971, 1969, there, wrapped up like a great parcel. 1971, was still there. People picked their way through all this rubbish of tangles of bits of old concrete, metal, and so on. As people moved into these buildings at the top, they paid more rent as they got higher up the building. They saw their jobs disappearing in the London dock. When the public inquiry started, all the bits of the building that were hanging were cleared away. But someone took the whole of that bit down when it was rebuilt. 
They must have found what we've got down here, what we found when we took the building down. And the building was rebuilt and it was patched up. We found bits of newspaper in it in 1986, 1987, dated 1972. Accounts of football matches played between the Arsenal and West Ham. And in October 1983, I went to see it again with Francis Clark of Community Links, who was organising a conference on tower blocks in East Ham. And we'd been told that engineers were being called in to look at Ronan Point. But when we got there, we found they were putting a new insulated roof on the top of it, which seems a bit like putting a cart before the horse. And the tenants, after I spoke at the conference, asked me to go and look at Ronan Point. And I did. And I found that all the things that I had said about it over the years had come to pass. And Sir George Young, who's a government minister, came to Ronan Point. Television crews came, about 90 people stood in Mrs. Curry's living room till one of us said, are you sure the floor will stand it? And they all moved to the walls. Now, <laughs> Sir George Young was actually instrumental in helping us to get Ronan Point down. I think that his pains got sacked, which was rather sad. And we demonstrated, or I demonstrated, that you could poke a piece of paper down between the outside non-load-bearing wall panel and the edge of the floor slab. Now, George Fairweather, who went to give evidence at the public inquiry, wasn't allowed to speak about that, although he was chairman of the code. And we showed it to Tony Banks, Nigel Spearing, various other people. And the structural engineers asked if one of those panels, or suggested that one of those panels should be removed while the building was full of people. And Francis and I and the other tenants said no. They said that we could fireproof the building so that it would stand up in the event of a fire, it wouldn't fall down, and uh, we put fireproof things there and there. And I said, OK, if you expect people to move in it, you run a fire test, you be up there, you have men filming in there through the wall, you can have a fireman standing by each one of you, and I made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. They said it would last half an hour to an hour. After 11 minutes, they put it out. Why did they put it out? because they actually thought the building was going to collapse. Now, I had told them this, and they didn't believe it. If the building research establishment had actually sat down round the table with me, I could have told them where to look it up in the ministry, because there was a report dated the 13th of September, 1968, and that report stated quite conclusively that the building could collapse due to failure of the H2 joint at the corner, being pushed out by a domestic fire if the fire was at the bottom of the building. 
I think they thought it themselves because they supported that floor with all this steel work and they had measuring devices and it dropped three inches although they said that that might have been an error on a computer. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But the floor slab bent there and it pushed that wall out and there was nothing really to hold it and there was the dead weight of about 20 floors on there pushing down. In September, in August, late August, one of the tenants, Sheridan Hitchcock, said, well, if the building is so strong, you say it's as strong as it is, how was it that Miss Hodge was able to get up, walk out, and yet the building collapsed? We want this joint opened. And they opened it and immediately covered it up, as you can see. And I phoned Charles Nevitt, and I got Charles to go down and photograph that with a long-range camera for the Times. And when we looked at the photographs, there was nothing in it. And one of the engineers who'd been to it from another borough phoned me up and said, you're quite right, there's nothing in the joint. Well then, we had to move into a much wider campaign in the press, in the Times, by various m means, such as these, by Barry Fantoni, who used to work for Private Eye in 1968 when Paul Foote and I did a series of articles on Rona Point. And as you will see there, it says, you'll be perfectly safe now. We've done a major reconstruction job on the report, which exactly is what happened. And then finally, the building research establishment said, the only way to make the build, or the engineers said, the only way to make the building safe is to take eight floors off the top of it. Then it won't collapse in a fire. And then finally, the building research establishment said that. And the minister released a document that I'd read in 1970 and taken copious copies of, and over half of them were missing. On the 16th of May, we had a... Um, I may have missed a slide there, sorry. On the 16th of May, we had a party. We decided to take the building down in reverse, the well, last thing you do with a ship is name it. So the first thing we did was to take the uh, name of Ronan Point down with a golden crowbar. And um, children came. There was a huge cake made by the catering department and bits of it ended up in various tower blocks and hospitals around Newham. I took some home and... Uh, original tenants, the first people to move into Ronan Point came and we set to work to take it down. As John Phillips, structural engineer for Newham, Barry Hunt, one of the original students who worked on this um, from Canterbury. The day that I, I got up there was a Friday. We were standing on the top of the lift motor room. I thought, when I go back this weekend, I must phone up George Fairweather and tell him I really have got onto the top of the building at last. And I got a phone call that Sunday from his daughter to say he died. That wasn't the first time I got a phone call about his death. Two years earlier, 1983, three years earlier, I got a phone call from the Architects' Journal saying, one Friday, George Fairweather's dead, want an obituary. 
by Monday. I didn't feel terribly happy about writing it and I phoned his, his daughter up on the Sunday, spoke to her children and said, um, very sorry to hear, your granddad's died. They were Scottish and they said, oh, grandpa's no deed. We just had lunch with him. So, anyway. And we took it down and they lifted up the panels one by one load-bearing panels, and we could actually see they went down the building. It's all very exciting. There, there wasn't much there. That, 150 millimetres, six inches of concrete. At most, there was three inches of concrete, and the rest of it was tin cans, bits of wood, cigarette ends, and so on, and this soft wadding. What you see down there is an extremely good example of one of the load-bearing joints of Rona Point. Because we gained a lot of knowledge and information from these men here who took it down, because they made sure that we found out what was actually in the building. There was a great um, special day in October 1986, and... Uh, for uh, historians and so on. We set up an edicule and then a large tent and we had a great collection of experts. I don't know what the collective noun for experts is, perhaps it's an ego. Anyway, lots of people came, they ate chickens and things on sticks and so on and there were speeches and Australian television came and uh, did an interview and gradually, Ronan Point disappeared until finally it was gone. Where did it go? It was sold back to Taylor Woodrow who put it under the Stoleport runway and also somebody else, it, it, there, there are bits of it under the M11. So if you go over a bump, you'll know why. <laughs> yes? And the Stoleport opened, there was a public inquiry. We were all involved in the public inquiry. Some of the people that are here now, I went down there. This huge building with blue curtains, a room about twice the size of this, draped in blue curtains. And uh, I said, uh, before I go and give evidence, can I go and have a pee? And the man said, it's behind that curtain. And I opened the door and it was like something out of 1984. There was a building that went on for about 300 yards and a porter cabin with gents on it. And while we went in, it was so cold in there that everybody was in a little room with heaters and temperature about 80 degrees, and while the evidence was given by the tenants, they all looked at their fingernails and out of the window, and nobody took any notes. And the people of Newham were promised they'd only have Dash 7 aeroplanes. They come in at about 45 degrees. My children saw one a couple of weeks ago when we came up. They come in at about that angle. She thought it was crashing. Now they're saying if we can't have jet planes, we're going to go broke. And they're talking about bringing jet planes into there. That is the third London airport. Now, as we took it all to bits, 
this is what we found. That is 1970 strengthening. It's called a safety pin. It looks like the end of a safety pin, and a bolt is supposed to go through it. In fact, there's the bolt, and it's nowhere near the hole. And this, which is the sort of thing you make sandcastles out of at uh, <coughs> Clacton, was supposed to be structural and wrapped around that. And in most cases, it was only about half. There's the inside of the H2 joint. There are the bits of hardboard. There's the line where the paint finished. And if you measured most of it, it was much less than what was shown on the drawings. And those bits of concrete there, you could pull out with your hands. And there's the famous bolt. There's the bit of hardboard. And this is some steel that was put on after the collapse in lots of flats throughout the country. From there to there is three quarters of an inch. The bearing should be two inches, but it isn't. And the nibs are unreinforced. There's a bolt with a slot, and that goes into the floor. None of those nuts were tightened up. Any of them uh, in 1968, 15 were inspected and 14 of them were found to be so loose that you could turn them around with your fingers. They were holding the building together. And there's the bolt. And there's a cracking at the bottom. Now all of those bits of building were taken away. I've got some in my garage and the BRE have got a whole load in a very large airship hangar at Cardington, we think. They were supposed to write a report on it. They knew them yet to hear what happened. Now, what are the implications of all of this? This is a block of flats in Walton Forest, Castle Road. As a result of what we did at Newham, we made contact with lots of tenants, including Keith Rayner um, of Walton Forest. And um, this occurred a couple of years ago. It was reported in building design, um, and it was reported in the press, but nobody really realized what had happened, because the building didn't fall down. This panel here was blown out of the building, and the back wall of the building was also blown out. Just before that happened, an old age pensioner was sitting in his lit living room and he filled up his lighter with a lighter canister about the size of a fountain pen. Perhaps you've got one in your pocket. He went off to make a cup of tea. It ignited. As it ignited, it shot across the room and it went into the electric fire and exploded and blew the front of his flat out. The pressure was half a pound a square inch. It tore metal fixings clean out of the concrete. The public inquiry said that the pressure required to take a non-load-bearing panel out of a tower block was a quarter of a pound square inch, half that pressure. I took my children to Ronan Point. They were absolutely horrified by it. They had been before, and my eldest daughter, Rachel, went when... Uh, 
we made a, a, a program with open space and the tenants <laughs> wrote to open space and uh, were given facilities by the BBC to make a program. While we were there, uh, um, she went in uh, the building and couldn't believe that architects had actually been involved in, in such a quite awful environment. But we found things as the building was being taken down, including this in one of the lowest flats in Ronan Point, and it's a Calagas heater with a 32-pound bottle of gas in it. You're not really allowed to have those in system-built flats. Everywhere you go, you see notices saying that you can't have them as a result, uh, it, because if there is an explosion, the building will collapse. Now, the person that had that knew the danger, was someone who took part in the evacuation of the building, moved off and went into a house. And if we couldn't police it as a campaign, and we had access to every single flat, no one can police these things in a building. And unless these buildings have proper insulation and proper heating, an explosion is inevitable. Glasgow, front page of the Daily Telegraph. All clad in aluminium with a two-inch gap behind it, fixed with pieces of wood to the outside of the building with polyurethane insulation. A continuous air gap all the way up the building. They have fires. There's a fire that occurred in a in uh, one of the uh, clean in one of the uh, drying rooms. The tenants in there, apart from the problems of condensation and dampness, which is much worse since that was put on, are terrified of the fire in that building. This is one of the flats. That's red paint. The people upstairs were painting their skirting when the pot of paint overturned. Now, if paint can go down, flames can go up. You can hear people talking, and we carried out tests in Ronan Point of somebody standing here and somebody being two floors below. You could talk in a normal voice and hear it. It would travel up like the Whispering Gallery in St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, Leeds. Barbara Young's estate, Dean estate in Leeds, built in Rima. Remember, tall stories that you can believe. The balconies. She phoned me up and said, what should we do? I said, get the fire brigade in. Get them to give you a fire certificate on the building. So the fire brigade came and said the fire, we couldn't pass the fire escape. It's too dangerous. If there is a fire, people will die in the fire stairs. So what we advise you to do is everybody to go and stand on the balcony. And Barbara said, but look, we've had this letter from the council that says only one person is allowed to stand on the balcony at one time in case it will collapse. And there is one of those flats. You can do this in lots of system-built flats where panels have warped, bits of concrete have fallen out, and people can actually shake hands and pass messages 
from one flat to another. You don't have to put it through the letterbox. And you see a lot of this on blocks of flats. To stop, they're called fans. They might become a design feature. And they're to stop bits of falling debris. But this isn't to stop bits of falling debris on people. That's to stop people, that's to support the balcony of this block of flats and the weight of people walking along it because it is in danger of collapse. They're about 20 years old. Now are those, is that picture any different to the pictures that Wal Harrington took in the 1930s? And there is a, almost like a campaign list, like the army has flags with the names of blocks of flats that tenants throughout this country could tell you about. Hawkridge in Kentish Town, which had a report from structural engineers saying wouldn't advise the gas turned off. It was turned off, the block had to be evacuated. Hunslick Grange, Felling in County Durham, two estates designed by Paulson, stitched up by Dan Smith, blown up <coughs> by long-range telephone calls from the tenants down to me, and Scarn. South London, Dan Smith, a report by a, a firm of surveyors. A woman had complained about smells in her bedroom. She had put endless air wicks. She'd spent a fortune on bottles of Dettol. The wallpaper kept falling off. When they'd stripped the wallpaper off, there was strawboard behind and the strawboard was full of worms which were crawling out of the walls in this woman's flat. Sue McDowell, can you focus it? I'm not sure if it is focused. And Sheridan, of course they've got wicked grins. We've just come down from the top of Roman Point and they've just seen what we've found. And Francis, standing on Roman Point, today. Somebody said to me in the hospitality room, "Is it st it's still occupied with people, isn't it? So it shows, you know, apologies to you down there. Why did we do it? Because of conditions like this. Local authority housing doesn't have to be like that. It could be like this, designed by a friend of mine, Bill Forrest, London Borough of Camden. But unfortunately, a lot of it is like that, and people are left and they're stuck with it. And the chair of the tenants' campaign is Eileen McCloy. Eileen lived in a tower block. The only way that she got out was she went on a rent strike. But she put her money in the building society. She saved all the money that she owed the council until it was over £500. They eventually agreed to rehouse her, so she, she, they, they, they called her into the office in Glasgow and said, Mrs McCloy, you can be rehoused tomorrow morning provided you pay the money back today, thinking she wouldn't have the money. So Eileen got her brother and a pram and... Uh, some pillowcases, and she went to the building society and she said, what is the 
what is, are the smallest coins that are legal tender that go to make up 500 pounds? And they gave them to her and they laughed as they gave them to her and she got them out of the bags and she mixed the whole lot up and uh, she put, put them in the pram and they put the baby on the top and they pushed it through all these motorways in Glasgow, some of you may have seen this week. People have to actually cross them. And um, she, got, she got to the local authority, to the housing department. They said, next. And she went to the council and she said, I've come to pay my arrears. Cash or check, the woman said. And she said, cash. And she beckoned her brother over. He lifted the pillowcase up and he filled up that slot that goes like that. And the woman was horrified. Had to close... They had to close the uh, rent office and they spent three hours counting out all this money. And at the end, the chief official came out and said, Mrs. McCoy, you're seven feet short. So Eileen said, well, you're just going to have to count it all again. <laughs> My children got an answer about what to do with these buildings that were built in the place where the wealth of this country came from. Men went to the Royal Docks. If you put the Royal Docks on London, it stretches from tower, the Tower of London to Marble Arch. It was dug by hand. Dickens went down there and he wrote in household words about buildings with no foundations. The first bombs of the Second World War fell on the 7th of September on Cundy Road, just at the back of Ronan Point. And that is where Ronan Point is, is, was built. That's Freemasons Road Estate. There's the Royal Docks. These are a couple of Dorniers. And this isn't by the LDDC, although some of the tenants think it might be. It's a Luftwaffe uh, photograph. And today, we have articles in the newspaper talking about the Docklands and a half-million-pound semi, and the government proposes a fast lane because they don't like getting stuck in traffic jams. This is what Ronan Point is like today. We've reduced it to that. We can't take that away because nobody would have any electricity in the whole area. And it's fitting that this lecture occurs while Walter's exhibition is on at the Festival Hall. Because I lived, when I first started and embarked on all of this, in St Anne's Close in Highgate. And I was sandwiched between two very formidable architects, very small. One was George Fairweather, who lived in the vicarage, and the other was Walter Siegel. And the first phone call that George Fairweather got after giving evidence at Ronan Point was from Walter congratulating him on having the courage to do what Walter felt a lot more architects should have done. And also in St Anne's Close was Monica Pigeon, who had the courage as editor of architecture, as uh, architectural design to ask me to write an article in 1968 about this building. And the only other people that would publish anything about it were Private Eye. And 
I, there is very little that I can say now, uh, now about this building and about these buildings. It doesn't exist anymore, but it's almost a circular argument. And I will just leave you with these last two comments. Thank you. Do you want to take questions? So we'll have a good quarter of an hour. Who would like to start? Charles. What was the drilling noise? I don't know. I don't know. I think the, I think the question of the electricity meter is a very important one. And I think the question of the... You see, if you, could, if you had had, in 1968, a block of flats that had collapsed and hundreds of blocks of flats that were being built in system buildings throughout this country, something as silly as a pile of gramophone records standing on the hot floor in a cupboard had actually caused an explosion and brought down a 200-foot-high building, nobody would have gone back in. Any of them, never mind one of them. But to actually say it was gas was quite simple because the it's like King's Cross inquiry and stopping people smoking. Everybody thinks it's safe putting indicator lights on the ferries that go across the channel. A friend of mine, a farmer who's in his 70s, went across week after Zebrugge, and a lorry was sticking out the back of one of the ferries. I mean, it happens all the time. But I don't, I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, you know almost as much about this as I do. Okay, there we are. Would you use the microphone? Yes. yes. Could you say who you are? That uh, was Charles Nevitt that asked that. Uh, Ken Dixon. Uh, Sam Webb once wrote a, uh, a book review of mine on economics and state housing. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> he rather rubbished it. But anyway, um, what I thought he might be saying would be or telling us something about how we as a profession came to let the whole of society down. These buildings were built by architects, and they were supervised by architects. Now, that's, that's just one point. Next thing is, the tower blocks were no worse than the, the low-rise mega-housing schemes and the, the Blue Skies project. I'm talking about deck access schemes and Hume uh, scheme in, in, in Manchester. In, they were all characterized by being mega-housing schemes. And that was the main problem, as far as I can see. Another thing you might have mentioned was that all these problems occurred in public sector housing. No speculator, property developer, had the stupidity to put their money into, as a speculative venture, a system-built housing. The only stupid people were in the public sector. Now, I would have thought that having spent so much time on this problem, that we would really get some more insights into how the whole thing came about. And remember that before the uh, uh, Second World War, we had a replica of what happened at Quarry Hill Estate. The whole thing was spelled out then. Identi identically, we were fascinated by new construction methods. And this is what I believe, that we as architects became technocrats. 
and we were so fascinated by new technologies that we didn't feel that we could fault them at all because that's some sort of brave new world. Mm. Well, I, th I think that's quite an interesting point, but you should remember they weren't public sector builders that built them. They weren't public sector builders that floated the systems. They weren't public sector builders that took systems from Scandinavia and changed the details. The original detail for the Larsen-Nielsen system was nothing like the one that you saw up there. It was impossible to push the drive hat mortar in and have it fall out the other side of the building. That detail was changed when it was brought here. Now, as to your other point about, um, well, speculators and other people, they weren't that silly. Well, one, see, one of the things about um, building failures is they're usually dealt with in camera. One of the things that George Fairweather did um, was to advise on building failures. I can assure you there were just as many in the private sector as there were in the public sector. Look at the programs that have been made about housing, World in Action and other programs about people's housing in the private sector. Trouble is, if you bought your house on a mortgage, the last thing you want to do is to tell anybody what's wrong with it because you can't sell it, can you? And it actually works against that. I mean, it is difficult and to put in an hour or an hour and a quarter what was essentially 50 years or a century's history. Because you know that they go back much further than this, that there were all those buildings built after the First World War. They all fell to bits. They're all included in the housing defect bill and so on. But I, the question I would put, see, I was a young student when all this started. And I came into it in 1962, 61, 62. And I went to work in local government. Now, what I did within local government was actually, I was almost hamstrung by legislation that had been passed. In the immediate post-war period, most of the housing was houses. And there were arguments in Parliament about um, cutting the areas. And there was a debate in Parliament about, you know, uh, where members of Parliament were saying, well, we could make the walls thinner, we could make the rooms smaller. And they would probably have suffered claustrophobia in a building four times that size. And um, then the standards got cut. In when Macmillan launched his 300,000 houses a year, it could only be done with the same amount of materials because there were still building licenses in those days. And then there was a white paper published in 1953 which radically altered the way that housing had been um, conceived. And it said quite categorically that 
homes in the private sector would be two-storey houses with gardens bought on mortgages because that's the best way to save and local authorities would be in blocks of four five-storey walk-up flats. And then somebody came along with a cheap, cheap lift and you've got a 20-storey block. And they weren't seen as places for people to live in. They were seen as production exercises to make money, just like is happening today in Dockland. And I think that in 20, 25 years' time, maybe sooner, that bubble will burst and all sorts of problems will arise there. I mean, why were the walls underneath the walls full of cigarette ends and bits of wood? It's quite simple. The men worked on piecework. It's best said, before the mortar was, was placed, the floor slabs had to be swept clean. There was nowhere to sweep it. They just swept it under the walls. That wasn't a local authority building it, it was, you know, it was a firm. They were working to profit if they couldn't get it up faster, somebody else would. Is there another question? Sorry. So Mark Smullion from Building Today. What is the situation of the remaining blocks on the estate Ronan Point was on? They're empty. Um, three of them were built to a slightly different system. There are moves by certain sections within the council to put homeless families back into them. We think that that would be a retrograde step and actually very dangerous. Now, people have said to me, this is only peculiar to England or Great Britain. It isn't. System-built flats have been taken down in Holland They've been blown up in France. The Russians have taken them down. In Poland, they're considering, you know, putting pitched roofs on them and making the, the, the buildings in Gdansk a, a little more soft for people to live in. It is not something that is peculiar here. And the problems of Newham, or any London borough, or any borough in terms of 
the provision of housing now has reached a crisis point. Question at the back, please. Sorry. Patrick Henney. Um, in all your stories, unfortunately I missed the first sort of quarter half, or so, so tell me if I'm wrong in the question, but in all your researches and all the time you've been working on this, have you ever come across a document written by an architect, um, probably in a, in a public sector position, written to councillors at a very, uh, any evidence of document at all, saying, I am deeply concerned yes. about this proposal, you should not go ahead with it. Uh, my advice is you should stay well clear. Mm -hmm. You've come across. Yes. And what happened? I mean, in, in those cases when they when they just gets ignored. Is it a minority? It just gets ignored, or other. I mean, I can cite you an example of Hawkridge, in Kentish Town. Um, Hawkridge was a Rema block built 1960-61. It was one of the first sister-built blocks. The district surveyor, St Pancras, said it didn't comply with the building regulator, uh, with the <coughs> London Building Acts. Would they provide extra structure, which was done? Ronan Point collapsed. I was working in Camden. There was pandemonium in the office. Every drawer was taken out, put on the floor. The borough architect, the deputy borough architect, people were crawling on their hands and knees looking at these drawings, trying to find out if Camden had any, because nobody knew, because it had been an amalgamation of Hampstead, um, uh, St Pancras, and um, Hoban. And they found this one. They wrote to the National Building Agency, and the National Building Agency said, the building is perfectly okay. It had gas in it. Building's perfectly okay, could withstand a gas explosion. They didn't do it once, they did it twice. And um, if anybody had any doubts, they were sort of swept aside. People continued to live in that building. A couple of years ago, I was asked to go and give some advice to the tenants. So I went and I prepared questions for them to ask the council. The firm of structural engineers came along and they believed that the building was okay, that it had been checked. And so I asked for the documents to be produced, and they couldn't be found. Now, the chief structural engineer approached the town clerk and said, these buildings are dangerous. He phoned me and said, I'm very worried about him. I knew him from when I'd worked in Camden. And the town clerk said, we're paying consultant engineers, don't want to know. And the only way we broke that logjam was by me going on television and standing in the street outside Thames Television here and doing an interview about a minute, followed by an interview with, um, I think he was called Wood, the chairman of the housing committee, who said, the, well, we've received a, flat, a report to say these flats are safe. Within six hours, Camden had decided to clear that block of flats, and it was cleared, and they've now sold it, and some unsuspecting people may well buy it in the future. Now, it happens all the time. I mean, I, there are people here that I can see in the audience. I know it's happened to. 
I mean, if they want to tell you afterwards, they will. For any of us, you know, you're surrounded by tenants where you're sitting at the back. They'll tell you of it. You know, we know what happened after the fire test, where they told us the building was safe. Yes? And it wasn't. So it happens all the time. There is a report in the ministry files of someone who worked for a firm of contractors. So we left the firm because we could no longer hold ourselves responsible for what they were doing. Yes? Question in the aisle. Hello, Sam. Richard, Richard Guys, Essex Institute. Um, it seems that uh, Sam and I uh, worked on, uh, together some time ago, and I think um, what a lot comes down to is uh, a sort of collective madness that uh, grips architects in large organizations. And I think actually uh, professionals get trapped into uh, believing uh, experts on, on what is possible. Uh, it seems to me to behove us all in educating architects and any other professionals um, and doing it within uh, practice generally to, to stand up and say the, um, the unpopular thing at the, at the drawing board stage. It seems that those details, uh, you know, if we'd have looked at them now in hindsight, of course, and looked at them uh, at the time, they wouldn't have worked. Uh, but we get carried along, don't we, by... Uh, by a kind of uh, collective um, uh, conformity that says, you know, it will work, it will work, don't uh, bother me with uh, uncomfortable truths. Mm. Um, and I think it really behoves us as, uh, as architects in um, public sector especially, um, and any large organization where we're being sort of driven along by all sorts of motives, uh, be they technical or, or money or whatever, to say, um, hold on a second, what are the implications of, uh, of what we're doing? Mm. Well, um, you and I worked on a school that was never built. And we produced, Richard and I produced a scheme within about a week. Single-story <coughs> school in Somerset. The Education Committee wanted a two-story school. We couldn't do it for the money. We told them we couldn't do it. But we were sent back and we did scheme after scheme after scheme for well over a year. We'd worked on another building where we did started in January. We had all the bills of quantity in in May and the building up in, uh, started in October. So we did know what we were doing. Finally, a month before reorganisation in 1974, Somebody in the hierarchy came to Richard and I and said, would you do that original scheme for us? You know, the single story one you did. And we said, um, when do you want it by? It's got to be done by April the 1st. So we told him to get somebody else to do it. I mean, that, in a way, is an answer to Patrick's question. I think architects actually ought to have the courage to say no. They ought to actually say, this cannot be done. I mean, Richard and I commented on all the flat roofs in Somerset. They probably replaced those about four or five times since we left 15 years ago. How many times do you take off the tiles on your pitched roof? Look at all the buildings that have had pitched roofs put on them. 
you know, this major growth industry in this country putting pitched roofs onto post-war buildings. You can build flat roofs that don't leak, but you have to spend money on them, and I think that's one of the problems. I mean, that triangle up there uh, is, is, um, is the major problem. We're asked to do too much for too little. I think there's another question at the back. Thank you. Nick Waits. Um, what I find most extraordinary about the Burning Point story is really the way in which it's taken uh, Sam, somebody who, as far as I can make out, has been working on it more or less as a hobby, to expose what is really quite a, uh, you know, a major scandal. And it seems that most of the scandals which emerge in the environment, in the built environment, emerge in this way. And uh, I mean, the other notable figure recently is obviously Alice Coleman. And uh, I just really want to ask Sam whether he'd had any support from the RIBA, for instance, in his campaign, or any other institutions, and how he thinks that in the future, um, what, I mean, which kind of bodies and who should be investigating these kinds of issues? Well, it was, it was actually, I mean, Richard will know this, because um, it was shortly before I met him and other people can confirm it. In 1970, I went and I just went down to the ministry and I asked to see the files and I read through all those files and I came out. I, I spent three and a half weeks wading through about half a tonne of files, most of which have gone. But I know what's gone. And I collected sufficient documentary evidence about the structure of the building to convince a number of people, including engineers, that some serious questions needed to be asked. And I went to the House of Commons with my wife and with Joan Littlewood. And we went to see Tom Dryberg, Member of Parliament. And Tom had called together a group of um, MPs. And he agreed one of them wasn't there. And he agreed to after listening and seeing this paper and the things that I'd, I'd written it all down so they could actually go away and verify it with all these documents. Tom went away and he came back a bit later after about 20 minutes and he said, um, he's not coming. I'm not going to say who he was. He's not coming. And Joan said, why? And he said, we just sent a message for young Mr. Webb that if he repeats this outside Parliament, he will be sent to prison for criminal libel. Now, I was talking about people's lives. There are engineers in the audience who were faced with the sack for questioning the stability of buildings they didn't build in London that are still full of people. And you ask what help I got from this institute. None. Many people privately um, helped me along the way. That's one of the reasons why I asked Gordon to, uh, to chair this. Because the first time I really came into contact with Gordon was when I prepared a paper 
for the policy committee on Ronan Point, on Summerland, and on high aluminous cement. And Gordon probably remembers him, um, and he spoke to me afterwards. I got help from people like Alex Gordon. I got help from encouragement from people like David Rock. I got help from various structural engineers, Tony Hunt, Frank Newby, Cedric Price. I got a help from a lot of individual people. But as for this institute, no. I mean, what do you hear this institute saying today about Canary Wharf? Much more important than poultry and Jim Sterling's building. Much greater impact, if you want to know why house prices are going up so fast in East Anglia, it's because of what's happening in Docklands and there's a fast railway service in. And no, you can't expect this institute. George Fairweather, 1960s, 20 years ago, not only was he chair of, I've forgotten the British Standard Code, the, the one on uh, fire and high buildings, he was also chair of all the committees. Of the, the, there, there is a code, uh, there is a, a, a committee in which all the code chairmen sit. And a very eminent structural engineer at one of those meetings stood up, pushed his chair into the table and said, I'm not sitting in this room while that man is present. So how could you expect them to help me, who was a senior officer grade one in the London borough camp, and who occasionally got telephone calls from the chief structural engineer of the Greater London Council saying, why are you saying this? And I said, but I've read what you've said, that your buildings aren't as strong as Ronan Point. He was talking about Morris Walk, Aintree Estate, and so on. When we did calculations on those a couple of years ago, structural engineer found that the staircase on the Morris Walk series was liable to collapse in a wind of a given velocity in a certain direction. Not the flats, but the staircase. Now, you can't expect the RIBA. It takes a brave person to stand up in this place and change it. I mean, you all know that. David. My name's Rock, you might have heard of me. Um, it's, it's very interesting uh, to hear Sam uh, bringing back all those me memories of 25 years ago. And if I could use Sam's technique of, of just uh, uh, giving li li little stories, which perhaps together will we'll ma make up some sort of, of picture, because you might be thinking, and especially a lot of young people here, might be thinking that Sam's uh, sort of weaving uh, a story which no, no, no one else sort of, you know, w was around at the time and, 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 and he's gone rather mad. I, I, I can only say that a, an awful lot um, of what Sam, or all of it, I, I should think, Sam is saying is true. Um, but I'd also like to say that uh, the person across there was actually almost saying uh, that it was the architects that were wrong. Um, perhaps we were, but it's, it's very difficult for people to realize that at that time in the, in the, in the 60s, from what it was, six, 1960 onwards, how much the 
industrialized building world seem to be in the hands of contractors and engineers. Um, mm. it's, it's rather interesting that we are going back to, because of, of our contracting me methods or, or uh, the way that we're building now, faster and faster, that we're putting more and more responsibility as architects back into contractors' hands. And um, which, which, which is fearsome, really, if one goes back to those 25 years ago. Because um, I, I can only say that, um, again, a little story. 1963, industrialized building exhibition, um, Interbuild, called Building Exhibition then. And Bob Smart and I, who is now one of the senior partners of BDP, I was at BDP at the time, we held, we did an exhibition and uh, we were approached. It started as actually five systems and it ended up with about 55. Um, but we were approached over the, the uh, six or nine months that we were getting that exhibition together by dozens and dozens and almost hundreds of contractors who were interested in bringing systems into this country. And we were doing um, not just an exhibition, we, we, we were doing an analysis of, of all the systems that were actually put up there. You might remember this, Sam, mm -hmm. I don't know. But we were horrified, and Bob Smart and I did an article, you might look it up in Interbuild, which is out of print now, um, afterwards, uh, saying how horrified we were at the ignorance of the contracting uh, system people. Um, and how, in fact, the only people who seemed to understand the systems were the marketing men and, and, and the people who were writing the adverts. And this is quite true. I was uh, also, another little story, uh, after that exhibition, there was a very big meeting here. Sir Keith Joseph was, um, was mm. speaking. Um, and um, Kenneth Campbell, I remember, was giving the vote of thanks or speaking something. He was, and it was all fixed. Sir Robert Matthew was up there where Gordon is, and all the qu questions were, were fixed beforehand. Um, and I was a, a, an angry young man then, rather than an angry old man. Uh, and and I, I actually forced myself, I actually forced an, uh, a question, and I was asked to sit down because I wasn't on the list of questioners. And I, you can look in the IBA journal, you seem to spend a lot of time looking at that, and see this all written down. And I actually had a go at Sir Keith Joseph and Kenneth Campbell uh, pointing out, repeating what, what Bob Smart and I, and it was actually got told off fairly heavily by Robert Matthew afterwards because uh, Sir Keith Joseph had come to the Institute. And you didn't say things like this, that. You certainly didn't point out that, that, that he, he was actually a contractor, because as, as many of you probably don't know, Sir Keith Joseph was, in fact, uh, went into the government from being MD of a very large contracting firm there's also another little story. There was a very nice um, article, which I still got, which uh, showed a conspiracy in the government of contractors. There were an awful lot of people at the top of the government then who actually came from contractors. Uh, now, this is not, I'm not having a go at contractors. Uh, don't, don't get me that, that and uh, don't, the press don't take it like that. All I'm saying is that the world at that time was seen to be very much in the contractor's hands, and we as architects were given systems. We mightn't even be drawing the details. We were given systems to actually do something with. And if you tried to change the systems, even uh, you weren't allowed to because th that was how they were built. 
I had a building, four buildings in fact, fall down on me. Uh, officers messes Aldershot. Um, so, you know, once that was what, 63, 62 or so. Uh, if you've ever been knocked up in the middle of the night saying your building's falling down, li listen, which was because the chap phoning me was actually had a house on the edge of the site. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, but in fact, that was all to do with exactly the same story that the contractors had their own engineers um, whom we didn't de deal with who look, looked after all this. So I think that for people to say that the, um, that the uh, architects, and, and this is not meant to be an apology for, for architects at all, it's just to get back into what was a completely different system of working then, which I think mm. that most people don't quite understand. And, and David Adler here, who was at that time, perhaps you know, could say exactly the same story as other people who of that age could, could, could perhaps explain. It's very difficult, I repeat, to get back into those heady and yet completely different days from, from now. Thank you, David. Thank you. Charles, you want to... Yes, sir, ask you. Is it closed? No. Well, there's the man from the ministry who's spoken. Just explain who I am. My name's Steve Marlow, and I, I am, I'm afraid, at the Department of the Environment. Uh, hello, Sam. Um, we've got a bit of Rodan Point, yes. We've done various things to it. Uh, we're still looking at large panel buildings, and that program won't be winding to a halt for another year, <clears throat> by which time all the various reports that you are will be out. I think the more important thing we're engaged on is we're looking at the whole field of non-traditional buildings in a very systematic way, of which one has to say Rodan Point, Taylorwood Ranglian, large panel systems are but a part. We're talking about one and a half million non-traditional named system dwellings in about 450 systems built since 1919 onwards. Now, some of those are not prefabricated. The one that Sam mentioned earlier, uh, I think it was a Boswell House, Boswell. wasn't it, Sam? It's not prefabricated, actually. The problem with that is that they had unburned clinker in the aggregate there. That was a problem that arose in the 20s in a lot of buildings. The code was changed. What? It is concrete Yeah, it's panels. poured concrete. Um, and it's, it's the, the problem is, is, is the clinker in it. Affected other buildings as well, the mm. codes were changed. But it's important to keep in perspective that the majority of system-built dwellings in this country are not flats. Even in large panel systems, a very large proportion are houses. The questions that you've raised and others have raised about the viability on social grounds, on many other grounds, of tall buildings generally, large housing systems generally, are very valid ones. The problem is um, that for various reasons, after the First World War and for similar reasons after the Second World War, speedy systems of construction were tried not using traditional materials. And I think one's got to put the large panel experience into perspective and the Ronan Point part of that as well. 
We know that there are situations where tall buildings don't work very well and aren't desirable for housing. We know of others where apparently they are. Um, there are, I believe, by some wall frame flats going up in Docklands there at the moment, albeit they look rather different now. They have that sort of Mickey Mouse styling on the outside, which is so fashionable. Hmm. Um, so you got that, Louis? You, you might Good. like to, to track that one I down. I can see a drawing growing up there. Yes. The age next um, but, I, I, you know, the, the answer is that nothing is ever finished. No, no pursuit of knowledge ever stops. In fact, I wrote something for a committee the other week which said that the, uh, you know, the pursuit of knowledge can go on and on. The question is what you usefully get out of it. As far as we're concerned, in terms of the structural investigations of large panel systems, we're, we're just about through. We believe that investigations on how to improve habitability how to do an awful lot of things, those should, will and should continue. But those are different questions, I think, and ones that I really can't address this evening. Well, one more, and then we'll have Do you want to? Could Sue to ask a question? Because Sue, I mean, you might like to come back on the point that um, our friend from the ministry has raised. My name's Sue McDowell, and at the time of the Roland Point campaign, I was actually chair of the Newham Talbot Tents campaign and worked along with Sam and Fred Jones, who was the chair of housing, and a lot of the tenants to empty Roland. And there's a number of points that have come up tonight that I'd like to make people aware of. And the most important that I think that you should be aware of is that there was things about, you know, why did it go on, how did it happen? And for all Sam's contacts in the 1970s, the one thing that's different about Sam Webb is that when the tenants turned around and said, Sam, we're worried, we've got a problem, please come and have a look, Sam came and he had a look and he didn't think, silly tenants, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, you haven't got any idea about structures, etc., etc. Tenants were told that those buildings or those individual flats would withstand a fire for an hour. And they knew that with great big gap in holes between the outside wall and the floor panel, they weren't going to withstand a fire for an hour. And it was only when Sam came and said, yes, I'm interested, I'll have a look, people started sitting up and taking notice. But tenants had been living in it for 15 years. And the whole problem that I'd like to get across to you is that as architects, when we talk about, you know, experts, etc., etc., if you work for local authorities or you're into public sector housing, go out and talk to the tenants, because they know exactly what's going on. They live with it. The second thing is, is that you was talking about or the minister was talking about various different things, the man from the ministry, should I say, was talking about various different things. And Sam was asked the question about what's happening to Ronan Point's sister blocks now. Well, the thing that's happening to Ronan Point sister blocks is that Newham Council are considering putting the homeless in them. And they're not considering putting the homeless in them because they want to, because there were a lot of those members of council that fought like we did for a whole year, seven days a week, for that complete year, the reason they're thinking about putting them in is because Newham has a large housing homeless list and there is nowhere for those homeless people to go except bed and breakfast and the council have to make a decision between putting them in TWA which they know is structurally unsound or putting them in bed and breakfast and using up much needed finances. So I'd like people to realise that, you know, it isn't because Newham Council want to, it's because Newham Council, like a lot of local authorities, like a lot of public sector housing 
It's being starved of finances by central government because the idea is let's break it up and sell it off. That's the second point. The third point that I'd like to leave you with is please do not forget we've got rid of Ronan, we've had the Bison campaign, we've got rid of the Bison campaign. There's a hell of a lot more tenants out there now living in TWA, living in Bison and living in Rima. And it's only people like architects, engineers, etc. that start listening to them that we can actually get rid of the blocks. Thank you. Can we end there and go and have the well, drink? Just let's, uh, oh, sorry. Yes, please. Uh, my name's David Wiley. Um, I'm a recently qualified architect. I was about eight years old at the time of all this. Um, I get a lot of flack for places like Ronan Point, although I was only eight years old at the time. I wondered what eight-year-olds today are going to be getting, getting a lot of flack for for my sort of work in 20 years' time. Well, Sue, the, who's only just, just finished speaking, I think you were about eight years old too. Yes? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's a difficult question. I, you know, there aren't books written about these things. You actually have to use your eyes and go out and see it. You really, architects actually have to go and walk round buildings. And the most valuable thing that happened to me, two most valuable things, between 1954, when I left school and I went off to study architecture, and 1984, was in 1956 when I was thrown out of the Northern Polytechnic for asking too many questions and I did my national service. And the second one, and I got to meet ordinary people that I'd never been in contact with. But the second most important one was actually something that never happens to any of us, or rarely. I was given a term off at college. A term off to do as I liked. So I had an income coming in, because Kent County Council paid it, and it enabled me to travel up to London and meet Sue and David Adler and various other people. And within the space of, I don't know, it was only about a fortnight, we'd got a closing order on Roman Point. And I, that, that, three, that term, that three months, was like a breath of fresh air, because I wasn't surrounded by <coughs> architects. I had to talk to people and explain quite complex things in a language that they could understand. Not just tenants, television interviewers, newspaper reporters, and so on. And uh, do interviews literally standing on the curb uh, uh, two or three minutes after the fireman had put the fire test out at Ronan Point. You know, what, what is your explanation of this? And I gave it happened to be correct. I mean, I don't know what they would have done if it had been incorrect. I mean, you are intelligent. You're, you're very privileged. You're probably the last generation that would go through, unless something radically changes the policies of this government, will actually have a public education that came in with the welfare state and was actually won as a reward for the people of this country in the war. I think we should go and have a drink. So do I. You agree? <laughs> I hope that wasn't too long. Oh.
Thank you for doing that. I hope it wasn't too...